Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. My guest today shares her story on social media to let other minority women know that they're not alone. Welcome, Rima Shabar. Did you ever feel a sense of disconnection from your body, either when you were going through treatment or through surgery or anger towards the situation? I wouldn't necessarily say I was angry with my body. I'm a firm believer that everything is destined in a sense. And if it's been destined that I have endometriosis, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything about it. Same thing with infertility. I can't. I'm trying everything I can. It's just frustration with not understanding the end goal. I guess my frustration would lie there. Well, why do I have to have endometriosis? But at the end of the day, I just have to roll with the punches. I try and tell myself that, and I always try to remind myself of what I have, what my blessings are, and I can't just fixate on this one aspect of my life. As hard as it is, not Mm -hmm. to fixate on it. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journey Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. The average American is spending less than 7% of their time outdoors. When I read that statistic, it's kind of alarming because we are spending more and more time on technology and we are spending less and less time engaging with nature. And nature can have a direct and positive impact on our well-being. There are several benefits that we can gain from being in nature. It can improve our mood. It can reduce symptoms of depression. It can lower our stress hormone. It can improve our healing time reduces pain, it reduces anxiety, it improves our immune system, and it can also be linked to decreased ADHD. Shinrin Yoku, which translates to forest bathing, is a practice that's been studied since the 1980s in Japan. And basically it means to immerse yourself in the forest or nature. And there's a robust amount of data regarding this practice. This practice appears to activate our parasympathetic nervous system, the part of our nervous system that's in charge of resting and digesting. Forest bathing seems to get at the root of many different conditions, which in many cases is stress. There have been studies that demonstrated just a 40-minute walk in nature can significantly reduce the stress hormone cortisol and boost our mood. But don't let 40 minutes get you overwhelmed. I usually tell patients, try to at least get 10 minutes of your day outside in the sun as a way to help improve mood. And it's a great way to incorporate more movement into our day. Small, short 10-minute walks can be beneficial. And while you are outdoors, you're increasing your exposure to the sun, which can help to raise vitamin D levels. And vitamin D has been shown to be an important part of supporting mental well-being. 
Many people are stuck indoors, working from home, moving less, spending more and more time on technology, and they're rarely getting outside. Taking a break from your computer or your meetings, walking around the block once or so if you can, those kind of short breaks can be really beneficial for our mental health. Being in nature is also a wonderful place to practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is paying attention on purpose without judgment. During that time that you're outdoors, pay attention to the sights, the smells, the sounds, and the feeling you have of your surroundings. Be really present and immerse yourself in that experience. One of the goals I had for last year was spending more time outdoors. Even if it was just a few minutes, spending more time in the sun, spending more time in nature, going on more walks. I think that spending time in nature is a wonderful way to support your mental well-being. And I hope that you'll take some time this week to spend a few minutes outside each day. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found this helpful and I hope you enjoy today's interview. Infertility does not discriminate, but often minority women are not equally represented in the conversation. My guest today shares her story on social media to let other minority women know that they're not alone. Welcome. Rima Shabar. Hi. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thank you. I'm so glad to have you on. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'm super excited and I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to have these conversations. Just to open it up, there's a lot of stigma and taboo, unfortunately, that's connected to infertility and particularly in some cultures. And I think that's one of the amazing things that you've done is share your story. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to share it on social media. Honestly, so at first, when I created my Instagram infertility page, my intention wasn't to share my story. It was first to connect with other women that were going through IVF. So at the time, I had mm -hmm. just started IVF. It was the summer of 2020, right in the midst of the pandemic. And I had an anonymous account and just trying to mm -hmm. connect with women who could answer some of my questions or validate how I was feeling. And it was great. I found that support. And then a few months later, a member of the community had started a movement to diversify our following and the people that we follow on mm -hmm. the account. And I thought before she even started that movement, I don't mm -hmm. really see a lot of visible minorities in this space. Arabs. I maybe came across one or two Muslims who are visible, Muslims who wear the hijab. I didn't see anyone. So <laughs> I was just kind of going back and forth with myself. And I was a little reluctant at first just because I want to respect my husband's desire for privacy. And I also was a little nervous about how I would be received in the community. Given that A, I am a visible minority, B, that I am a Muslim woman. And there, like I said, there was really no one in the, in the community. So I wasn't mm -hmm. sure if I would continue to have the support that I was used to getting. So I was a little fearful backlash in retrospect. I was wrong right. to think that way because as soon as I identified myself, arms were wide open. I was received very lovingly, so much support. I just remember some of the bigger or larger accounts in the community were just reposting me on their stories and just saying, this is full along in her journey. And it was just, it was so great. It was so great. So from that aspect, it was successful. And then also the other reason why I wanted to 
put myself out there was so that other Arabs or other Muslim women or other minorities or just anyone in general, but I guess in this regard, people who look like me didn't feel as alone and that they were suffering mm -hmm. on their own because that's how I felt, to be quite honest. I've been surrounded mm -hmm. by people my entire life. My family, I have three siblings. My mom has seven siblings. My dad has seven siblings. My husband has seven siblings. So infertility was never a thing that I was really subjected to. Right. Even mm -hmm. my friends, most mm -hmm. of them had children with no assistance. So for me, I was just like, what's mm -hmm. wrong with me in a sense? Right. Like, why am I the only person that I know that's going through this? By putting myself online and out there, I've, in a sense, hopefully allowed other um, minority women to know they're not alone. It's so amazing that you do share your story. Uh, and I commend you on that, because like you said, especially going out and kind of being the first that you could see there are other Muslim women, but there's not many, like you said, visibly Muslim women on there. And I think that there is a little bit of a taboo as there is in, in general with infertility, but more so in the Arab Muslim community, just because I think everyone assumes you get married and then you have children. And like you said, a lot of families are very large and it's a topic, honestly, that's kind of discussed a lot like people ask you questions when they shouldn't be asking you that happens a lot to you <laughs> i see the thing is with me i was 33 when i got married so already in the the middle eastern community let's say um mature in age so i think that people already had assumed and these are my assumptions but people were assuming that okay well it's 33 she's gonna start popping them out and honestly that's what i thought was gonna happen too my husband and I, we had hoped to have a honeymoon baby. And when that didn't happen, I had a lot of self-doubt. And then it was heightened by members of our community prior to the pandemic asking, what are you waiting for? Where's the baby? Are you pregnant? You know, I had a couple of women mm -hmm. put their hands on my belly at bridal showers, for example, and asking, you know, oh, is there a baby in there? At this point, I was about six months in, 12 months into our marriage and trying. And those mm -hmm. comments, they just, now they make me angry. But back then, they used to hurt me so much. Mm -hmm. And just even my esthetician, I've posted about this before. But, you know, every time I would go to see her, she'd ask, what's going on? Any news? You look tired. Are you pregnant? And I, no, I'm not pregnant. Are you sure? I'm mm -hmm. sure I'm not pregnant. I'm on my period. Thank you like, for just reinforcing that for me. So yeah, there were a lot of questions. In a sense, the pandemic was kind of a saving grace for me that I didn't have to see people. I didn't have to go to events, go over to the community, yeah. run into people in the supermarket. I was secluded, isolated in my home with my husband, and we just kind of got away from all that. Us having these conversations is also important for those who are not struggling to have an understanding of how to communicate appropriately with women, knowing that it's not okay to ask. Many people, it's private. They don't want to talk about it. There are women who are childless, not by choice, women that are going through IVF, women that have um, chosen not to have children, whatever. That's their personal business. And it feels like this will allow us to have people to have an understanding of sort of some boundaries of asking those type of personal questions. 
Absolutely. And I think the thing is, I've spoken to my mom even after bridal showers or this or that, where mom was in attendance. And one of the ladies who had asked me a couple of times, like, and then it was a week, one week after another, where the same lady just asked me this, like, are you pregnant? Where's the baby? And so the second week, my mom said, what are you doing? Just, just leave her alone. This is not your business. Right. Whereas it took me telling mom how it was making me feel for her to realize, because at first she would say to me, oh, they don't mean anything by it. Mm-hmm. They mean well. And she's like, I've said things like that before. I'm like, mom, you shouldn't be saying stuff like that. You know, and I think since she's observed my journey, she has learned not to do that herself. Right. And mm-hmm. I've learned so much. Like I think back to some of the things I said to people in the past mm-hmm. and I'm mortified to absolutely mortified. Like I apologize to a friend of mine when I reflected on something that I said to her about five years ago um, mm-hmm. about not having children yet. And I didn't know at the time that she was struggling. And I, I so I messaged her about a year ago. I'm like, I am so sorry. She's like, no, mm-hmm. like, I remember it so vividly and I really am deeply sorry for what I said to you. So I think honestly, unfortunately, we don't learn necessarily what not to say until mm-hmm. either we're going through it or someone has said it to us and has been extremely direct about how it can make others feel. Totally. I agree with you. It's so important. And people learn, like you said. I mean, I think all of us have in our younger years when we didn't have an understanding, may have asked an inappropriate question that now you reflect back on and think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that because you don't have an understanding, like you said, when you're on the other side. Can you tell us a little bit about your fertility journey? Yeah, sure. It's like I said before, Hubby and I got married in 2018. We intended on having children right away. We'd known each other for a very long time at that point. We met when we were 18 and just have been really good friends all these years. And it's funny, you know, sometimes I I think back and about a month before our wedding, we were having a chat and I said, you know, maybe if we just wait three months, maybe let's just enjoy the first three months without potentially being pregnant. And then he like just out of nowhere goes to me, well, you never know. Like, what if we have like struggles? And I just brushed him off right away. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no, oh my gosh. And I brought that up to him recently. Think about where we were back then to everything mm-hmm. that we've gone through to this point. And it's just, it's madness. But anyhow, 2018, we started trying. Fall came around about five months into trying. I contacted my family doctor. I had just turned 34 at that point. I know that everything that I read online said, if you're 35 or over, try for six months. I was 34. Mm -hmm. So really, you were supposed to wait for 12 months at that point. But I spoke to my family doctor. I let him know he understood how badly we wanted children. He referred me to a fertility specialist, went that route, did all the workups. They didn't find anything. It was unexplained infertility. My fertility doctor had suggested maybe doing a laparoscopy to investigate endometriosis. Only because I had a cyst, no other reason. Mm-hmm. I wanted to avoid surgery at all costs and I wanted to just get to the end goal, which was a baby right away. So we started with an IUI in October of 2019. It was my 35th birthday with my first monitoring appointment because we had thought in the in interim, well, let's just try naturally, but mm-hmm. nothing was happening. So we did our first IUI in 2019. Nothing came of that. 2019, November, we tried again. Nothing came of that. We had intended on starting IVF in the new year, so January of 2020. And then the fertility clinic that I was with at the time operates out of the hospital. They had some 
roof damage and they needed to do immediate repairs, which were going to take two months. So that was going to take us into March, which is when I was supposed to start IVF. And then the pandemic came, shut everything down. We got into do IVF in August of that year. It was not a great outcome. I only had two mm -hmm. eggs. I do have a low ovarian reserve. There were five follicles the day of my retrieval, but three of them were empty. So we had two mm -hmm. eggs. My doctor wanted us to do a fresh embryo transfer. I was only allowed to transfer one embryo. And it was a, a fresh three-day transfer. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, that did not implant. And then our second embryo um, arrested before day five. So mm -hmm. that took us to September of 2020. No embryos, no real direction. I let my doctor know that I want to jump right back into another IVF cycle. He told me mm -hmm. to slow down. Let's investigate. Maybe you have endometriosis. Let's take a look. Mm -hmm. So then I had to wait. The great thing in Canada... Yes, we have, in a sense, funded healthcare, but the wait times mm -hmm. are ridiculous. Okay, mm -hmm. sometimes you have to wait a year to be able to see a specialist. You mm -hmm. have to wait a year and a half for an MRI at times. Wow. So he told me in September, let's get in for surgery. I had to wait a month to even get into the hospital to sign consent forms. And then I had to wait another month. Anyway, surgery was set for December. That got canceled um, due to COVID reasons. I had surgery in mm -hmm. January. I was diagnosed with stage three endometriosis. It was mm -hmm. all over my ovaries, my bladder, above my rectum. I had tons mm -hmm. of inflammation. So he removed what he could. And then we were told to try naturally for a bit. We did. Our fourth month of trying, we did conceive, um, shockingly. And unfortunately, just around the nine-week mark, we lost the baby. We had identical twins and I lost them. And that was traumatizing, just very tough. And then two months later, not even two months later, we were shocked and found out that we conceived again. So we had uh, two mm -hmm. spontaneous pregnancies within two months. Unfortunately, that one was very short-lived, barely five weeks. We were, were undergoing some, it, technically it's not recurrent loss because the second one was technically a chemical pregnancy, but mm -hmm. um, my doctor is quite thorough and he has us um, undergoing a bunch of testing. So we're waiting on some mm -hmm. results there. I just had another surgery four weeks ago, a second laparoscopy. He removed a massive cyst on my ovary and some um, endo. I uh, have had a lot of highs and lows in this three-year journey. Thank you for sharing with us and I'm sorry for your losses. I know that's a extremely difficult and it's something that I'm sure that still you're dealing with now. What kind of things did you do to cope after the losses? Oh, after our first loss, I'm going to be honest, it, I didn't cope well at first. I did spiral into a deep sadness, mm -hmm. lots of tears, lots and lots of tears, lots of days spent in bed, lots of days where I just couldn't I couldn't do anything. I really just couldn't do anything. It was a success if I got out of bed and made it to the main floor and, and then got onto the couch and, and threw on Netflix. It was hard. Thankfully, at that point, we had opened up completely to our families and friends about what was happening. And we had told them that we were pregnant. We lost the pregnancy. And this was such a big event for us because it did take us three years to get to that point. And they just wrapped their arms around us figuratively and literally, just an outpouring of support from my friends and family. That was quite helpful. 
But for me, it, it took, and I'm still working on it, mm-hmm. I'd say at mm-hmm. least two months, two or three months even to feel somewhat like myself again. Mm-hmm. I would say actually probably two months because with the second pregnancy, we had that hope again, right? And then that ended so soon that that was just another mm-hmm. fist in the gut. Mm-hmm. And I just remember when I got off the phone with the nurse at the clinic and my husband was at work and she was giving us her second beta results. Oh, I don't think, you know, I've ever cried like that before. I just, it's like I was, I felt like I was howling. My husband just jumped into his car and got home right away. And it was hard. But for me, what has been helping me cope truly has been talking to others that know what it feels like. I must admit that I do sometimes isolate from those who don't understand Mm -hmm. or who might have questions. And I'm just not in a space to necessarily educate at that time or to explain what I'm going through. Even with the second loss, I've had so many people ask, well, why? Oh, that's great. Like you're able to get pregnant, but, Mm -hmm. but like, what's happening? What's wrong? I don't know. Yeah. That's always their question. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I wish I hadn't shared it. Do you know what I'm saying? That we had a second loss. So yeah, honestly, just talking with people who understand the pain that has helped me walking, being out in nature. Mm -hmm. It's difficult, like you were saying, we have to seek out people who have an understanding of the situation, because sometimes the people that are your closest friends or your closest family members, although they have your best interests at heart and they love you the most and they want to be there for you, sometimes they can't communicate it the way you want to hear it. Absolutely. I love how you said that, because I I think really... To my mother, like she has the best intentions and the purest heart and she wants to help me and she wants to make me feel better. And I know, and I've said this to her, I'm like, I know you're suffering seeing your daughter go through this. Mm-hmm. You know, your only daughter, I know you're suffering, but I need you to use different words. And it's just, mm-hmm. and it's just again, so well-intentioned, but like you said, it's what she's saying. I'm not able to receive it the way that I mm-hmm. need to receive it. It's difficult because you want this from your mom or your sister or from your best friend, and they're just not able to be in that place because they don't have a full understanding. I think, unfortunately, it's one of those things that you can't fully comprehend if you've not been in this situation. Truly, 100%. So did you find support? on social media or did you kind of retract from social media after that? So the thing is, I I didn't actually go on social media right away to announce our first loss. It Mm -hmm. took me some time. There was another lady in the community that was going through something very similar at the exact same time. So I was Mm -hmm. messaging her when we were just kind of comforting each other at the time. But then about maybe a week or two after our loss, after I had the DNC, I posted it online. And there was mm-hmm. an outpouring of support. And that's the great thing about the Instagram community. I don't have Facebook. I know there's a large infertility or Facebook infertility community, but I'm not a part of that community. But the Instagram community, mm-hmm. again, wrapped their arms around me and really just lifted my spirits. But the thing is, I had an influx of messages, but I didn't have, again, the emotional space or mm-hmm. energy to even open my messages. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. When I saw, I had tons and I just couldn't open it and just read everyone's messages or reply Mm -hmm. to people. And I'm the type of person, like, if someone messages me, not that there's anything wrong with just simply liking a message, but I like to actually reply to a message. Mm -hmm. And I just knew I didn't have any to do any of that. So I did retract for a bit. And 
there were other people who asked for my phone number and or my address. People sent me meals from the community. Like people I've never met. Oh, wow. Flowers, meals, teddy bears, all that kind of stuff. It was just so great just to feel that love from people that I don't know and who understand. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, another reason why to be off of social media was, don't get me wrong, I am very happy for my sisters in the community that who are finding mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a couple of people who had just gone through treatment and had their positive betas or their first ultrasounds and, you know, I would have been pregnant at the same time as them. It, it was just hard for me to be around. It's very difficult to handle triggers because on social media, things just pop up on your feed. You have no control unless you completely mute people. But none of us knows what someone's going to post. And so that's one of the problems with social media is that you never know what's going to come up. Right. And even have triggers in our own lives, friends or family or going shopping or, like you said, certain dates can be triggering. Did you do anything to handle those triggers, whether on social media or off of social media? So in terms of my infertility account, a few of the people that I follow, nothing mm -hmm. against them. You know, I am happy for them, but it's just a reminder of where I would have been in my pregnancy. So these are people that fell pregnant either shortly before or shortly after our loss, first or second loss. So I haven't unfollowed anyone, but for the most part, just meeting people or just staying off social media. In terms of my personal Instagram account, I I've been actually going on there more. I don't find that I see a lot of pregnancy announcements on there. I don't follow a ton of people on there, so I'm not mm -hmm. seeing too much triggering content there. In terms of people in my physical life, unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but my sister-in-law and I fell pregnant at the exact same time. And mm -hmm. she's due two days after what our first due date was supposed to be. And she's one of my closest friends. So that has been difficult to navigate. It was more so at first. Um, I couldn't see her. And she completely understood. And at one point I said, let's get together. And she's like, no, it's okay. I'm like, no, no, like, let's, let's get together. I, I need to do this. And we did. And there were lots of tears, but I needed to let it out. She's like, I'm so sorry. I knew I should have come. And I said, this has nothing to do with you. It's purely me. I need this. Mm -hmm. Like I need this. I need to go through this to heal. So it's been good. I'm glad that I did that. I kind of needed to bite the bullet. And just every time I see her now, it, it is a reminder, but I am very happy for her. And, I, and I, but it, it, I'm not going to lie. It's been tough. Sometimes when I do see her, it's tough. Sometimes avoiding social outings too. You know, people are going to be talking about their kids, all that mm -hmm. jazz. So my husband doesn't necessarily support that always you know you can't just hide at home you can't isolate and I mm -hmm. agree to an extent but it all has to depend on my mental space yeah I think that's really important because I think you need to have an understanding of where you're at and how to protect yourself and so you communicating whether it be your friend or like your sister-in-law and letting them know what is okay and what you can do. I think that's important because sometimes you want to let them know you can invite me to this thing, but I might say no, because sometimes people wonder like, should I invite her to this party? I want to, but I also don't want to be hurtful. But, you know, letting them know that I might need to say no to going to this baby shower or to this get together because it's not the place for me at this time. So I think it's important just to communicate it. I want to go back a little bit. You got the diagnosis of endometriosis from surgery, but there was some suspicion on your ultrasound that you had a cyst, that maybe it was an endometrioma. 
Did you have any signs or anything that you started thinking back? Hey, did I have any signs about endometriosis or were you completely blindsided by that? Thinking back to when I first got my period, like I've always had a painful period. Uh, We were taught Mm -hmm. always that, okay, well, that's normal. Women get cramps, backache. I'm the person that has severe back pain, Mm -hmm. lower back pain. I do get cramps, but it's 10% of my pain. But I thought that was normal. My periods were always always on time. I never really had any issues aside from the first couple of days of my period. Mm -hmm. You know, the extreme fatigue, just normal aspects of our period. Fast forward to us trying to conceive, I guess, from my doctor, the fact that we were having issues. And I did have cysts back in my late teenage years, too. And I was often monitored for that. Every six months, I'd have to go for an ultrasound and just check on the cyst. Mm-hmm. And it was just like it was one, one cyst that would just come and go, come and go. So that was happening for years. But no, there was never any suspicion about endo. I did have a, mm-hmm. a gynecologist, again, probably 18 years ago, say to me, oh, I, I believe you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that was back then. And there was really nothing done about it aside from just continuing with birth control. Mm-hmm. So now that I know what endometriosis is and I've read up on it a ton, and seeing a lot of women in, in the community and, and hearing their stories and, and their journey, I think that unless I'm, I'm playing down my pain, but I think I'm one of the fortunate ones when it comes to pain and endometriosis, because like I said, it's really mm-hmm. just the day before my period and the first day of my period where I'm in a lot of pain. But again, that, mm-hmm. that can be medicated and, and it goes away. Mm-hmm. Painful urination is, is symptoms. I don't have mm-hmm. that. Painful bowel mm-hmm. movements. I don't have that. Painful intercourse. Not really. Infertility is really the biggest trigger. I think back to my 20s and I had so many issues with my digestive system. So many issues. Mm-hmm. And I had seen every specialist you could think of. You know, I was with a gastroenterologist for years. I had to see an mm-hmm. internal medicine specialist. And I was diagnosed with celiac disease, and then that was taken back. I was diagnosed with cyclical vomiting syndrome. I was diagnosed with gas- mm-hmm. gastroparesis. I was diagnosed mm-hmm. with abdominal migraines because I was often ill. And we didn't know what yeah. was causing. And it would often happen around my period. Um, mm. I'd get quite so ill that I'd be vomiting nonstop and I'd have to always be hospitalized. And no one could really figure out what was going on with me. And just like lots of constipation, it's just like gastrointestinal mm-hmm. issues, right? So mm-hmm. now I sit back and I'm like, was that endo? Was, was that endo the mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. You know, so that's really the only, for me, like the aha moment where I'm endo was just yeah. being in the shadows this entire time. I mean, women wait so long for a diagnosis. Sometimes people are waiting 15 years before they get a diagnosis, 20 for some And part of that is just because it is a surgical diagnosis. So it's not like I'm going to draw your blood and see if you have endometriosis or not. We have something that you need to go for surgery. And as you said at the beginning, I'm not going to do surgery. Nobody wants to do surgery. Like that's not like, yeah, sign me up. That's my last thing. Let me look at that if I really, really need to. Or people who present with tremendous amount of pain, they might be more inclined to get surgery because they think maybe the surgery is going to help them with their pain. But yeah, it's very interesting what you said about having all those gastrointestinal symptoms because a lot of times patients have these gastrointestinal symptoms and they're like just focusing on the gastrointestinal system. And sometimes I'm like, the reproductive system is right there. (laughs) And so sometimes when patients have pain, is that from the GI tract? Is it really that? Or is it endometriosis? Was there a lot of women with endometriosis who present with 
bowel symptoms, right? Or stomach pain or nausea, vomiting. And they get missed for a long time. And that for me, the nausea and vomiting, like it was my daily occurrence. I was nauseated 24-7. So once I've cut a gluten, that mm-hmm. and an inflammation, that's another big thing actually I missed. I'm a high school teacher. I was a teacher in the middle of the winter when it was snowing outside. I would have my window open in the classroom and sleeping at night, having my window open above my bed, hoping that the snow could come in and just cool me down because I was always mm. so, so hot. And I know now if I have gluten by accident, I know immediately because I get inflamed. If you have a true diagnosis of celiac disease or if gluten is just something that bothers you, for sure, that can be part of the reason for your gastrointestinal symptoms. And you know, endometriosis is an inflammatory condition. So you cutting these certain things might help endometriosis as well. Tell me a little bit about going through treatment during the pandemic. It was challenging, just a lot of waiting at first, hoping that we could start our treatment and then being told, you know, it is a backlog. We need you to wait a couple of months. And I did start to go in. I wasn't allowed to have my husband with me for any of the appointments for IVF. He was not present at any appointment. And then even with IVF itself, he wasn't there for the egg retrieval, the transfer. That was hard to go through something as, you know, life changing mm-hmm. as IVF to have to go through that alone. Also, just not to have the support. Again, we were isolated inside so we couldn't see our family. Um, and for me, my nieces bring me joy like nothing else. Mm-hmm. This girl is just, mm-hmm. and, and my nephew has since been born, but they make me smile. And I wasn't able to see them. Right. And I couldn't hold them or kiss them or anything and just kind of get me to the difficult days of IVF. Right. Mm -hmm. It was same thing, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of surgery, just having to wait. There was just so much waiting during the pandemic. So that was the most challenging. Mm -hmm. All the time that I felt Mm -hmm. was wasted sitting on our hands and waiting for a surgery date or for an IVF date or any date. Honestly, that part really breaks my heart about how many patients had to go through things by themselves, whether surgery, whether retrieval, whether transfer. It's so awful for me to see that because it's the time when you want support, you want someone next to you, want someone to support you. It's a very important moment, a time, and here you are, you have to do it alone. It's hard. And one of the things about, you know, infertility can cause a tremendous amount of stress on a couple. What kind of things did you and your husband do to stay connected and keep your connection strong? Like I told you before, my husband and I have known each other at this point for almost 20 years. We grew up together, so we know each other inside and out. And he really knows how to be there for me when I'm struggling. There were so many times earlier in our marriage before we started fertility treatments where the night or the day that my period would come, I would be a mess, crying and and so much pain. And, you know, I remember one night he was working at nights and I had just got my period right before he left the house to go for work. And I was in so much pain and I could just see the pain in his eyes because he had to leave me with just getting my period. So just being so hurt that he didn't conceive again. And then in all the physical mm-hmm. pain that I was in. So he left for work and about 20 minutes later, I was laying in bed and I heard our garage door open and he comes upstairs and he went and he got me my favorite Slurpee and brought it upstairs and got one for himself. And I said, don't you have to be at work? He's like, my wife's more important than work, you know, and, and he, he oh stayed with me. It was a small act but of kindness, but just 
those kind of things for me just mean so much. And he knows food is the, the key to my heart. I love to eat. And, you know, anytime I'm having a bad day, he makes it a point to go out and get my favorite treat or my favorite meal, sends me flowers or just leaves me a card on the counter and just really lifts me up in that sense. It, it, it's been a stressful journey, but I always find comfort in him and he finds comfort in me. Not to say that we haven't had we butt heads during the journey when we were doing the, the injections, right? And I would just be so irritated about the littlest thing. And I recognized that I was doing it, but I couldn't stop mm -hmm. myself. And sometimes he would lose his patience. I would lose my patience. It hasn't always been hunky-dory, but we know when we need space and we know how to come back to each other. So it's been great. He's been my rock the entire time. Takes me for walks, takes me for drives. We go to the beach when the weather is nice and just walk it off. Right. And, and, and laugh it off. He knows how to make me laugh. We're jokesters with one another. We know how to make each other laugh. So it's just the littlest comment. You know, I could be sobbing and he just makes the littlest comment about something and I can just burst out laughing. That's how we maintain our sanity throughout this whole ordeal. Again, we go back to someone knowing how to respond for you. And it sounds like you had a connection because he knows what works for you and how to give you space and how to make you laugh. And I think all of those things are, are really important. I think because at the end of infertility, whatever the end of your journey is for anybody that's listening, your partner is going to be there with you. So you have to nurture the relationship through this. Although sometimes it's really difficult and sometimes we're angry and sometimes we're irritated or upset or sad, but we have to lean on each other during the times. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, I say to him when I'm really upset about getting my period or about mm -hmm. the loss and it doesn't seem like he's as upset, mm -hmm. right? And I'm just like, are you not hurt? Mm -hmm. Are you not bothered? Are you? It's like, of course I am. But I don't show it the same way that mm -hmm. you do. And that's been something for, that I've had to learn. Yeah, that's a really difficult thing for a lot of couples to understand that grief looks different in everybody because we expect it to look like how it looks for us. We're sad or we're crying or we're not going to eat or we're not going to go anywhere. And you're like, how does he seem fine? But they have just a different way of grieving. Did you ever feel a sense of like disconnection from your body, either when you were going through treatment or when you went through surgery or anger towards the situation? I wouldn't necessarily say I was angry with my body. I'm a firm believer that everything, I guess I, I shouldn't say everything happens for a reason, but everything is destined in a sense. And if it's been destined that I have endometriosis, it's not something that mm -hmm. I can control. It's out of my hands. It's not like I ate something or I wasn't active mm -hmm. enough or I didn't take this medication and this is like cause and effect in a sense. I can't do anything about it. Same thing with infertility. I can't. I'm trying everything I can. And if this is the body that God gave me, I'm going to do everything in my power. But at the end of the day, I leave the decisions to him. And I believe that he does know what's best for me. And I have to trust that. As much as I don't necessarily see why certain, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote decisions were best for me, like by our first loss, I still grapple mm -hmm. with that. Like, why? I don't understand. We went through three years of hell to get this pregnancy. Why did you take it away? And then again, like with the second loss, just two months later, I'm like, why is this happening? 
Why aren't you giving Mm -hmm. us something that we want so badly? So it's not necessarily frustration with my body, but it's just frustration with the plan and not in frustration with not understanding the end goal because he might have the most fabulous future lined out for us. And often Mm -hmm. my husband and I will sit back and be like, maybe if the first pregnancy went on, this could have happened with okay twins. Mm-hmm. We know that they're high risk. Maybe we would have lost a twin. Maybe they would have been born with potentially like high risk special needs. What if this? What if that? So we always try to play out these scenarios and kind of appreciate what we do have in the present. But yeah, I, I guess my frustration would lie there. Sometimes I I think back, well, why do I have to have endometriosis? Why do I have right. to have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism? Why do mm-hmm. I have to be suffering through infertility? So in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the frustration is there as well. But at the end of the day, I just have to roll with the punches. I try and tell myself that. And I always try to remind myself of what I have, what my blessings are. And every time I go for a walk, and I get out and I smell the fresh air and I hear the birds and I hear the water by our house. And I always just say thank you because I'm often reminded of war-torn countries and people who don't have the same liberties and freedoms that I have in Canada and access to clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. I do have a lot of blessings and I can't just fixate on this one aspect of my life. As hard as it is not mm-hmm. to fixate on it, but think you know what I mean. Yeah. It's hard because I think it's beyond our comprehension. So it's something just outside of our understanding of what the future could be or what it will be. We want to have an understanding. We want things in somewhat of our control to have an understanding of it, but when it's not, and that's the hard part, one of the most difficult parts about this situation. It's like you said, you didn't choose to have endometriosis. You didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing you could have done differently to stop endometriosis. And also there's many different types of endometriosis. Everybody's case is different. And so not having control of the situation is so hard. Oh, absolutely. Because I've always been in so so mm-hmm. much control of my life mm-hmm. when it comes to my education right. and just, you know, right. your relationships with people. And we have the, the ability to make decisions for ourselves. And the fact that I have no control over this and I'm doing everything in my power, but I'm not getting the results with all this right. hard work. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's frustrating. Yeah, You're used to your education. You put this much work out, you'll get that result. If you invest time in this relationship, you can nurture that relationship to this. When it comes to infertility, no matter what you eat or how you exercise or how you sleep and all those things can help, but they're not going to change the situation. And that's why it's so, so hard. How did you handle the waiting? Because we talked a little bit about waiting, which was especially difficult during the pandemic. What kind of things did you do with all the waiting? Honestly, I'm still waiting right now. Like I'm in a season Mm -hmm. of our fertility journey where I just had the surgery The waiting actually weighs very heavily on my soul and my heart. Um, I just turned 37 a few weeks ago. I'm not getting any younger. I have low ovarian reserve, diminished ovarian reserve. Like time is just slipping through my fingers. Mm -hmm. I was 33 when I first saw my fertility specialist. I'm now 37. Okay, time is Mm -hmm. just of the essence. And at times it's just like I find myself suffocating just thinking like, God, like another month, another two months, another three months, another, what is happening? And I think that nothing's happening, but then, well, we did get pregnant twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't last, but at least there's been some sort of 
progress, but the waiting is one of the hardest parts. It's like yeah. even right now, I'm just like, okay, well, what are we doing? Are we going to try naturally mm-hmm. right now for the next few months? And then maybe we'll get pregnant again, but we still don't know what the cause of our miscarriages is, mm-hmm. right? So we're just kind of waiting for those results to establish next steps. Do we try IVF again? Do mm-hmm. we maybe do an IUI in the interim? There's so many unknowns and it's just waiting for answers and waiting for direction. And that's hard. That's very, very hard. I stress about it, to be completely honest. And at times I just try to like just push it to the side. You'll figure it out. I think waiting is the worst because like you said, you feel that pressure, that internal time. We all do it. We have a timeline already set. I'm sure that happened to you when you met your partner. You had a timeline of what things were supposed to, quote unquote, look like. And then you keep changing that. Things keep happening that are out of your control. And you've been through, unfortunately, losses and two surgeries. So you've you've been through a lot. It's hard. When you're in the situation, you really need to give yourself patience and grace that you have been through a lot. So there, you know, a lot of people that are listening who are on their journeys as well. What is the best piece of advice you can give to somebody who's listening today? Find your community, find your circle, find someone that you can talk to, whether it be another person going through infertility, a family member, a therapist. Just don't bottle it all up and don't just rely solely on your spouse or your partner because For me, I find that I do that often and I'm really trying to work on myself and not always go to him with my sadness or with my concerns or with my stress Mm -hmm. and to find someone, a professional to speak to about it. Another thing, um, advocate for yourself. Advocate, advocate, advocate. You are one patient. Your doctor has several patients and several cases. And in your story, you are the hero, right? You're the main character. But oftentimes there are hundreds of main characters in your doctor's field and you just, mm-hmm. just need to mm-hmm. keep on calling or keep on emailing or don't let them forget about you. So I, I strongly believe in advocating for yourself. It's not to say that the doctor is dismissing your story or your journey or your case, but they're super busy and remind them that you're there. I love both of those because I do think, yes, community is in in general important for overall health, but even more important in this area because, as we spoke about, many people don't have an understanding of what you're going through. So finding a community of women or men, for men who are listening or, you know, partners, finding a community who understands is so important so you can feel that connection. They'll just understand, you know, like, hey, I went to this party and and this woman talked about being pregnant. Some people wouldn't get that. But when you're your community of women, they're going to know totally. They've been there, done that. They know exactly what you're talking about. 100%. And I've gone on stories and like bits of rage or just sad moments where I'm just like, oh, I was just out. Somebody announced their pregnancy and inbox was flooded, just flooded just validating how I'm feeling, right? Whereas like you said, yeah. I would tell somebody that doesn't have issues with infertility, mm-hmm. they'd be like, okay. You're too sensitive. Yeah, exactly, right? So it's just, yeah. yes, you need to find someone that will validate how you're feeling. Biggest advice. Yeah, and advocating for yourself, another really, really good one because 
that takes us back to even patients with endometriosis or PCOS. Sometimes they get this, oh, it's not PCOS. It's not endometriosis. I have seen patients who've seen four and five and six doctors and still got the same thing, but they have endometriosis or they have PCOS. So keep asking, keep asking questions. Like you said, keep calling if you have questions. It's, it's your right to make sure you get all your questions answered because otherwise, guess what? You're on Google searching for your answer and getting the wrong answers. So go to your doctor and ask the questions. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid to ask those things. In closing, I always encourage those on fertility journey and specifically my patients to continue to try to find joy in their everyday lives. How do you cultivate joy in your life? Like I said before, just being around my family, being around my husband, being around my friends. I'm someone that just likes the little things in life. Just having a nice dinner with my husband and throwing on The Office. We love that show. You know, sitting and, and, and watching that or just going for walks. And now that things are opening up, travel. I love traveling. We're just in the midst of planning a vacation for next month. So that'll be exciting. Laughing, just finding any excuse to laugh. Like I said before, my nieces and nephews. I love that. Yeah, traveling. We haven't done that in a while. So that will be exciting. That's something to look forward to. Where can listeners find you to connect with you on social media? Well, I'm mostly active through Instagram. So my handle is at patience.is.a.virtue.ttc. Okay, so we'll put that in the show notes. And any other places, or that's really where you hang out? That's mostly where I hang out. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I know your story will resonate with so many that are listening. Thanks for having me. The Fertility Journeys Podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys Podcast. One of the things that I love about social media is being able to connect with amazing women like my next guest. Welcome Narissa Roper for a hardworking, highly motivated woman like yourself doing everything possible. You're thinking maybe if I do all these things and then when it works out, maybe it was that extra piece of pineapple when in reality, it really didn't have anything to do with that. No, once you get to that point, I'm not even lying. If I would have ate one more piece of pineapple pour, <laughs> like maybe this would happen. Or if I would have got out the bed first thing in the morning and put my slippers on and didn't hit the cold floor. Mm. I was literally at that point. Yeah. When in reality, that's not going to change anything. It's not. Will it help? Yeah, in some cases it does. But at the same time, it's not a deal breaker. It's not going to stop you from conceiving. Right. And once you get that in your mind and say, look, I don't have control over this because we're all here because of God. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.